Are you familiar with the Bill of Rights? I hope that you are. Uh, they serve as a very important basis for the government that we are participating in. The Bill of Rights, part of the Constitution. Do you know what? Could you define the Bill of Rights if I ask you to do so? Bill of Rights, what are they? Can you list some of the rights that are guaranteed to us in the Bill of Rights? Well, I hope that you could, but I think a lot of people probably would have some trouble with that, and, and that represents, I believe, likely a breakdown in the teaching of what we used to refer to as civics. We were taught principles about our government and how things are supposed to operate in this country, and I, I really believe that in large measure a lot of that has been taken away, and there's not near as much emphasis on that sort of thing. I, I'm confident there's a lot of people who could not properly define or recite uh, various parts of the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights are the first ten amendments to the Constitution of the United States, the first ten amendments. They were ratified on December 15th in 1791. Do you know the Bill of Rights? I, again, I hope that you do know, excuse me, I don't, I don't want to start our rights yet, but I want to talk about the Bill of Rights. Um, you know what some of them are? Article 1 uh, is the right of religion, for instance, that, that guarantees us the right to do what we are doing here today. Uh, it also includes the right of free speech, the, the, the guarantee of a free press, uh, the ability to assemble is all guaranteed in the first of the Bill of Rights. Uh, Article 2 says that we can keep and bear arms. That's an important right guaranteed in the Bill of Rights, part of our Constitution now, uh, amended to the Constitution. Uh, Article 4 of the Bill of Rights is the uh, right against unreasonable searches and seizures. We, we are privileged. Not everybody in the world has that kind of a, a, a thing, for sure. You know Article 5. You ever heard of someone plead the fifth in a trial, in a court of law? Uh, Article 5 says you don't have to testify against yourself, for instance. That's one of the principles in Article 5. Article 7 is the right to a uh, speedy and public trial. Again, lots of places in the world you wouldn't have that. Article 7 is the right to trial by jury, and so forth and so on. The Bill of Rights, they're really important. Uh, and again, we should be grateful that we have such as that. Today, I want to ask you, do you know your rights? But I'm not suggesting the Bill of Rights or the principles set forth in the Constitution of the United States, although those, although those are very important. Today, I want to ask you, do you know your rights as a member of the body of Christ? And do you know your rights in regards to being a member of this local congregation of people serving the Lord? We want to talk about rights this morning. Our rights, my right, your right as a Christian. Do you know what they are? Do you appreciate them fully? That's going to be our study for a few minutes this morning. Thank you for being here. As has been mentioned already, we have sort of a inclement day some winter weather we haven't had much of that this winter but we do have a little bit today and so it took extra effort on your part to prepare and come to the services uh, today but we're very grateful that you did and we appreciate your diligence and are very thankful for the presence of each and every one thanks for coming and thanks for the encouragement that you offer to the rest of us if you're visiting with us thanks for being here please come back every time you have a chance and ask any questions that you might have let's talk about our rights 
as a member of the body of Christ, his church, and a member of a local congregation such as this one here? Do you know your rights? I want to list some of them. I want to suggest to you, just as there are articles to the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, I'm going to offer you 10 rights that you have as a Christian. I do not, however, suggest that these are categorical or exclusive or that we're going to name every one. But I think here are 10 important ones. First of all, you have the right to the love of your fellow Christians. You have a right to expect that your fellow Christians will love you. Now, this is not some fuzzy emotional feeling that might be uh, experienced by some time, someone sometime or another. But rather, the love we're talking about here is a real concern that even would put your needs ahead of their own in situations that demanded such. You have a right to expect that your fellow Christians will love you. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. As we've studied that passage in time past, we understand that the love that Jesus was teaching there was that kind of love that is deep and sacrificial, that again puts the concerns and needs of another ahead of self. That's the kind of love that Jesus had, and he said we ought to love one another like he loved us. And he said, in fact, that such love demonstrated in the way we conduct ourselves in relating to one another would be an evidence of our discipleship. We would be imitating him in this matter and proving our discipleship when we have that kind of love. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 21, it says, This commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. And so loving God is certainly important. It's also important to love one another. And I believe that as Christians, we have a right to expect that kind of love, that I can anticipate that my brethren will treat me in that way. But also understand that while I believe that I have a right to expect that, that necessarily implies that I have the obligation to return it, to give it as well. And so it's not a one-way street. I expect that others will love me in the body of Christ, but they also have a right to expect that I will love them. And when we operate at that level, man, it's a wonderful thing. And all kinds of good things happen when we have love one for another, but it's one of the things that we can expect. You also have the right to sacrificial service that others can provide when you need it. But furthermore, you have that right to serve them in return when you have the opportunity to do so. In the passage that Yancey read for us earlier from John chapter 13, Jesus set an example of service for his disciples. Do you remember he washed their feet? After he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know you what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. There are some people in the religious world who believe that Jesus was literally saying <clears throat> that we ought to wash one another's feet and do it as a religious ceremony. And there are some religious groups that actually practice foot washing as a ceremonial act. Jesus wasn't teaching ceremony here. Jesus was teaching sacrificial service. And he was saying, if I, as your master, am willing to humble myself to wash your feet. We understand that washing feet was a needed service that people uh, had in that day and time. 
when they traveled dusty roads with sandals on their feet, when they would arrive at someone's home, it was a gracious act of service to wash their feet. It was something they actually needed done. It wasn't a ceremony. It was actually an act of service. And Jesus here then is setting forth the principle, not that you observe foot washing as a religious rite, but rather that you as Christians serve one another, humbly do what is needed by the other. And so Jesus set an example. And one of, one of our rights is to expect that people will serve us when we have need. If I have a, a, an extreme need, I have a right to expect that you as my brothers and sisters in Christ will come to that need. That's a very comforting thing to know. But also remember the counterpart of that is that I also have the expectation to serve you when you are in the situation to have need. In Galatians chapter 6 and yeah, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, it says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Uh, we need to be looking for opportunities and doing good for others as we have the occasion to do so. So, again, one of your rights is the, to the sacrificial service that others can provide when you need it, but be ready to do your part as well. You also have a right to have your convictions respected by others. I think it's important that we as Christians be sensitive to how other Christians feel about certain matters and how our actions might impact them if we are not careful. We need to guard them. We need to be concerned about their convictions. And we need to honor them. Now, we're not suggesting that we should be tolerant of sinful things. I hope everybody understands that. But in regards to a situation where someone has a matter of conscience that doesn't allow them to do something or require them to do something that we don't do, when they have a matter of personal conscience, then we should honor that uh, and respect them in that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul dealt with an issue that was a big problem in that time, and it was the problem of eating meats that had been offered to idols. A city like Corinth, for instance, was a place where many idols were worshipped. And when sacrifices were made to those idols, sometimes people would take the meat of that sacrifice and eat it. And some Christians had a big problem with that. Personally, in their conscience, they just couldn't deal with that. So they didn't do it. In this very epistle, Paul indicated that eating meats off of idols is not one way or another. It's a matter of indifference. It doesn't matter. But, he said, if a brother has a, an issue with it, don't do it. Notice what he said here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning verse 10. If any man see thee which has knowledge, in other words, knowledge of the fact that eating meats to idols is not an issue. If a man see thee which hath knowledge, sit at meat at an idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Here Paul said, you understand the truth of the matter, and that is that eating meats offered idol is not an issue. But there are some who don't have that knowledge. Their conscience is weak in the matter. They can't abide that in practice. But if they see you doing it, they may be emboldened to violate their own conscience in the matter and he says, don't allow that so. Be sensitive to their situation. And, and he put forth the attitude we all are possessed. If this is a problem, then I won't do it. Even though I believe I have the liberty to do it, I won't do it if it is a problem. Uh, he says, I will eat no flesh 
while the world stands. And so, just as Paul was encouraging those in Corinth, so we should be encouraged to honor the personal convictions and consciences of one another. You have a right to expect that as a member of the body of Christ. <coughs> Furthermore, you have a right to know that no one will unrighteously judge you or impugn your motives. Now, I'm sad to say that, unfortunately, a lot of times that sort of thing happens. Uh, seems, to be, seems to me, unfortunately, that members of the body of Christ are a quite judgmental group of people, unfortunately. And we need to be careful about making unrighteous judgments, about trying to figure out what is in the other person's mind, trying to judge their motive even, judge their heart. We're, of course, instructed to judge righteous judgment. John 7, 24, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. So judgments have to be made, but be sure they are righteous judgments. In the passage that we refer to so often in Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged, but he was talking about this hypercritical and hypocritical judging that is described in the following verses. Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, and considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how will thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. I have a right as a Christian to expect that you will not do what Jesus was condemning here, that you will not hold me up to some kind of artificial double standard that you won't judge me for doing things that you yourself are doing. And, but unfortunately, sometimes that happens. As Christians, we'll see someone else. And now, we may have lots of issues that we're not dealing with in our life, but we see some fellow Christian, they have some problem, and we're quick to jump on that before we deal with our own problems. That's wrong. Jesus was condemning that here. I believe that if we're operating as we should as Christians, then we should have the confidence that no one's going to make an unrighteous judgment against me. No one's going to impugn my motive. Nobody's going to be guilty of doing the kind of judging that Jesus condemned there in Matthew 7, where they're doing lots of things themselves that are not right, but they're judging me for something that I'm doing. Instead, what should happen is that each one of us should clear up our own problems, and then we can help one another deal with issues uh, in our lives. But that is a right that I believe as Christians that we can expect. You have a right as a member of the body of Christ and as a member of this local congregation to the confidence that other people will not gossip about you or slander you. Again, I'm concerned that although this should be an expectation that we have, it's not always fulfilled. Because unfortunately from time to time I hear of situations where people have engaged in gossip. I've, I hear of situations from time to time where people are slandering one another, and that among Christians in the body of Christ, and it ought not to be so. I ought to have the confidence, and you should too, that as a member of the body of Christ, that just simply won't happen. My brethren won't treat me that way, and neither will I treat them that way. I won't gossip about them, and I won't sl spread slanderous reports. We need to be very careful in that matter. I don't think we're careful enough. We ought to exercise greater caution in this very important matter. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning verse 31, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Uh, I think we know, don't we, 
when we've crossed the line and when the things that we are saying amount to gossip and slander, you know when you're doing that. And what you need to do is work very hard not to do that because your brethren have a right to expect that you will not treat them that way. It's a great disservice to someone to gossip about them or, or spread evil reports. That's not right. And as Christians, we should expect that we will not be treated that way by our brethren. Another expectation, a right that we have as Christians is to be the first one to know if you've done, if someone thinks that you've done or said something wrong. Now, let me explain what I mean here. Let's say that someone thinks that I've taught something in error or maybe that I've done something that I shouldn't have done. As a Christian, I have a right to expect that I'll be the first one to know about that situation, that I'll be the first one addressed in that matter, that others will come to me directly and personally right up front so we can deal with this problem. And you have that same expectation. If I think that you've done something you shouldn't have done or said something you shouldn't have said, you have a right to expect that I'll come right to you and try to work through that matter because that's what we're told to do, right? You remember the very familiar passage in Matthew chapter 18, beginning verse 15. If your brother shall trespass against thee, what do you do? Well, you start getting on the phone, calling around to other members of the church and talking about that that has happened. Talk about that other Christian and tell the things that he has done. No. If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. We have a right to know and expect that if someone suspects me of doing something wrong, they will come to me first and deal with it in that manner. Uh, and I should do likewise. As a Christian, you have the right to expect that correction and instruction will come your way when you are in error. We haven't got any perfect people in the body of Christ. Therefore, for all of us, there are going to be situations wherein we may be wrong and need to be corrected. Now, if I'm wrong and need to be corrected, notice the emphasis on the word need. I need to be corrected. And I ought to have the expectation that you will provide that service to me and that I would do the same for you. Not look the other way. In other words, uh, I, I know of this brother and there's something in particular that he's doing that's wrong, but I just don't want to deal with it. And so I'm just going to look the other way. Uh, this brother or sister is doing something they ought not to be doing, uh, but I'm, not going to I just, I'm just not going to deal with that. Uh, maybe the elders will take care of it. You know, let them let them deal with it. I'm not going to deal with it. I, 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 that's just not something I'm interested in doing. Can I have that disposition? Can I can I have that outlook on things? No. As a Christian, you have a right to expect that if you're doing something wrong, I will come to you and try to correct and instruct you. And I have the same expectation that you will do that for me. It's a part of our bill of rights, if you will. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. We've pointed out plenty of times before that there's some negative teaching there that has to be done. 
The idea of reproving and rebuking means to go to someone who needs correction and instruction. Don't look the other way, Timothy. Uh, Paul said, don't look the other way. You do your work. You preach it. You preach it when they like it and when they don't. And you offer them that reproof and rebuke. Give them the exhortation, the positive teaching as well. But deal with things that are negative if they have to be dealt with. And all of us should accept that responsibility to one another. I have a right to expect it. You have a right to expect it. It's a good thing, after all, right? I know Now, think about this. And in these next few things we're going to mention, these are things that some people think we wouldn't want. But actually, it's something that we desperately need and we should appreciate that we have these guarantees in place and that these necessary acts of service will be provided for. If I'm wrong about something, if I'm, if I'm engaged in erroneous or sinful practices, I need you to come to me and set me straight in that matter and vice versa. And so this is actually a privilege. It's not something to be dreaded. It's not something to say, oh, I wish it wasn't so. I wish people wouldn't act that way. No, this is very important for people to act this way, if you understand what we're saying. Along that same line, you have a right to expect to be restored or at least efforts be made toward your restoration if you have fallen away. Remember in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fall, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. You have a job to do. If you have a brother and sister in Christ who has fallen away, your job as a Christian is to do what you can to restore them. You have that job, and they have that job in, toward you uh, on the counterpart. Again, sometimes people act like they don't want this, but it's something we desperately... I've known of situations where uh, someone has fallen away or is in the very process of falling away, and they say, I don't want anybody calling. I don't want anybody contacting. I have even known of situations in churches where people threatened legal action if, if someone tried to contact them or tried to make efforts toward their restoration. What a huge mistake that is, of course. Because if, if I'm a person who's fallen away, then my soul is in eternal peril. And continuing on this course, I'll end up eternally in hell. I need someone to restore me. And I should have an expectation that if I've gone off, you all are not going to let me just wander on away, but you're going to do everything within your power to bring me back. I need to know that. I need to have that confidence that you won't let me just wander off and ignore my situation. You should have that same expectation. It's one of your rights to know that you cannot fall away and your brethren will ignore the situation. Instead, they will try to restore you. You have a right to disciplinary action by the whole church if such becomes necessary. Again, this is a thing that some people see as a great negative. You know, the whole idea of withdrawing from someone is considered to be just uh, a mean and hateful and awful process. Of course, when we view it that way, we actually are making a statement against God who in his wisdom taught this to be done. So if you think it's a terrible thing, a horrible, uh, of no value, it won't work, it does no good, if you have that outlook on this disciplinary action of the church, then you are actually critiquing God's wisdom in teaching that this is a thing that should be done. Actually, it's a good thing, a necessary thing. We've often talked about it. 
that sometimes if someone has been unfaithful to the Lord, it becomes necessary in an effort to restore that person, to bring them back before they uh, are lost eternally. We read about the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 being admonished to do this. And then when we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we read about the fact that they had done it and it, in fact had been successful in bringing back the erring brother. I need to know that if I've fallen away and I won't repent, you all will withdraw from me in a final last-ditch effort to wake me up and make me aware of just how dangerous a situation that I'm in. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning verse 6, Paul writes, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. Skipping down to verse 14, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. When we do this, we're not doing it because the person has become our enemy. Rather, he's still our brother, and we love him, we care for him, and we want him to be saved. And thus we will go to the extreme effort of administering such disciplinary action when it's necessary. I have a right to expect that you would do that for me. You have the right to expect that all the rest of us would do that for you. You have that right. And finally, let me suggest to you that you have the right to be forgiven when you repent and confess. We just mentioned a minute ago uh, the situation in Corinth, as is recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where the brother repented who had been withdrawn from, and Paul urged the church to restore and forgive him uh, as he had repented. Jesus actually taught us to forgive our brother when, the, when he repents. Luke 17, verse 3, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And so we have this right of expectation that when I repent, when I've done wrong, and I repent, when I confess my wrongs and, and, and repent of them, that you will forgive me. I have that right, and you do as well. Do you know your rights as a Christian, a member of the body of Christ, and as a, as a member of a local congregation such as this one? You know, in our country, uh, we hear people often express the, the statement, uh, I have my rights. Uh, or they'll say something like, I demand my rights. Well, certainly, as we've said in our lesson, in our country, there are rights guaranteed to us. But the big problem that I see in our country is that there are so many people who want their rights, but they, they will not accept any associated responsibilities that go along with those rights. That's a bad thing in our country, and I think that is one of the things leading to the decline uh, of our nation. Unfortunately, in the church, I think some of the same problem exists people believe they have rights they don't even understand what all of their important rights are necessarily but they want their rights protected but they forget that they, that such rights are also linked with responsibilities on our part do you know your rights are you also willing to participate in making sure that everyone else's rights are thus protected we hope you'll think about that I hope that our uh, brief study has been helpful this morning we'll end our lesson with a song of invitation our lesson this morning has been directed primarily to those of us who are already christians about the things that we have 
both a right and obligation to do. Uh, so let us word first in our invitation to those of you who are Christians, are you right with God? Uh, if not, and if you know as you honestly consider your situation that you've not been faithful to him, we beg you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer with the promise and assurance that God will forgive you and your brethren will forgive you as well when you do that. If you're not yet a Christian, we hope that you will make the decision to commit your life in obedience to God. Obey that simple gospel plan of salvation. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sins. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing. Oh.